Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and this episode is about my favorite first date movie and the absolutely amazing abortion rom-com, Obvious Child. It lit a fire in my belly. Oh, well, that's called diarrhea. So, Obvious Child is a 2014 romantic comedy about a raunchy female comedian in her late 20s named Donna. After Donna's boyfriend dumps up with her, she has a one-night stand with a guy she meets at a bar, Max. A few weeks later, Donna finds out that she's pregnant and leans on her friends and family for emotional support while she goes through the process of planning and then waiting for her abortion, all while repeatedly and accidentally bumping into Max, rom-com style. When the day finally arrives, Valentine's Day, Max goes with her to get the procedure done, and then back at his apartment, they settle in for a cozy day of watching movies while she recuperates. Um, surprisingly sweet. Su- yeah, surprisingly sweet. So a little bit of the production history. Obvious Child was written by Gillian Robespierre, Anna Bean, and Karen Maine. Um, it was originally a short 20-minute movie that spawned from Robespierre's frustration with what she perceived as a misrepresentation of women on screen when it came to unplanned pregnancy. 2007 um, was the year that Juno, Knocked Up, and Waitress all came out, these films about unplanned pregnancies. Um, And so the writing trio felt disenchanted with the representation of young women's experience becoming pregnant and wanted to make a movie that destigmatized abortion by featuring a woman who terminates a pregnancy without regretting her decision or I think even wrestling with it too much. They cast Jenny Slate as the lead after seeing her perform stand-up comedy. So the short was produced in 2009 and released on Vimeo where it was watched by 40,000 people. Uh, They were so inspired by the responses to the short film that they decided to expand it into a feature film. Uh, Jenny Slate is the only person who is in both versions of the film. The feature film also stars Jake Lacey, who you may know as Pete from the final season of The Office, as Max. Uh, Gabby Hoffman as her best friend. You may know Gabby from Transparent, Louie, and Girls. I only know her from her child actress stuff. Oh, really? Like Uncle Buck. Yeah. <laughs> She's like the kid in Uncle Buck and uh, a bunch of other stuff. David Cross, uh, most famous as Tobias on Arrested Development. Um, and Richard Kind, who you may know from Mad About You, Spin City, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Scrubs. I think he's in Toy Story. He's the, mm. he's the yeah. anxious T-Rex, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's so good. So why why did you pick this movie? What was the first like time that you ever saw this? So this was actually the movie that I saw on my first date with my current fiance. I know you always laugh when I say that, but I feel like <laughs> I'm like I'm hyper aware that these files are going up in the internet and people could be listening, you know, like a year in the future, five years in the future. Uh, the person, right. I guess the person who is currently my fiance and will hopefully soon not be my fiance. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So a any- first date movie, this is, this is a weird first date movie. I mean, it's a, it's probably, uh, the most, in a way, like the most appropriate first date movie. It is a f- movie about like the weirdest first date that you could possibly have. Um, That's true. <laughs> yeah, it just you know we were talking on OK Cupid, and he said he liked movies, and it was playing at the University Cinema, and I wanted to go see it, and so I was just like, you know what, like I'm just gonna send him the trailer, and he can decide based on the trailer whether it's something he's interested in or not. Um, and he said yes. So, yeah, we we got dinner beforehand. Um, so it wasn't, like, our first moment. Um, we, like, we, yeah, we had been hanging out for about an hour beforehand. But I, we both really enjoyed it. Uh, I think my first reaction was just I was shocked at how good it was and how well it sort of blended a serious topic like abortion with such an authentic rom-com feel and just how like genuinely funny it was i was asking my fiance a little bit and he said that he thought it was a good first date movie he said that it's sort of like it puts you in like a very honest vulnerable position right away yeah it got us off on a good foot i think 
it's weird to think like how those things all work out. Like now you're getting married and um, yeah, and you just wanted to see this movie and you're like, uh, I hope this guy wants to see this because I really want to see it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would have just gone by myself, but um, yeah. So what did you think when you first saw the movie? Yeah, I watched it for the show. Um, maybe people won't remember this from like way back from our very first episode. I had a roommate, Nick, who had to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer in order to date the woman that he's now married to. And um, he was an aspiring comedian. And so I was in and out of comedy clubs with him all the time and like hanging out with comics. And so this was like a subculture that it wasn't that I chose to be a part of it. It was just like, it was in my apartment constantly. I see. <laughs> the movie itself I thought was really funny, like way sweeter than I expected it to be. Like you watch the trailer and you're like, oh, this might be a little bit of like a Judd Apatow kind of um, gross out humor. Yeah. Because there's like the, <laughs> there's a whole thing about like peeing and farting and it's like about like a messy realness and showing her as like not pristine rom-com heroine. But then because of that, like I felt safer, like investing in the whole thing and rooting for her because I was like, yeah, she's like a real person. Yeah, exactly. It's just like a very realistic kind of like feminist view of having a female body with female bodily functions, which makes sense Mm -hmm. because like, I say this as somebody who's never had a baby, but like pregnancy is very messy. A lot of shit happens when you're giving birth, literally and figuratively. And so, (laughs) you know, you like, you can't really divorce like female reproductive issues from just like having a body and like having real body functions. One of the things that I think is so impressive about the movie is the way it it seamlessly melds the serious abortion plotline with the standard boy meets girl plotline. I think the third aspect of the movie that is also seamlessly integrated in with the other two is Donna's practice as a comedian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of there are three comedy sets, and they all serve as like important plot points and they all have very different tones. And so the first one is this sort of like very cheerful manifesto of the movie sort of like grungy body humor. It like, it starts with vaginas and ends with farts. I used to hide what um, my vagina did to my underpants. Um, And by the way, what all vaginas do to all underpants, okay? There is no woman who ends her day with like a clean pair of underpants that look like they've ever even come from a store, okay? They look like little bags that have fallen face down in like a tub of cream cheese and then like commando crawled their way out. I uh, surprisingly am not alone in my life. I have a boyfriend. Um, yeah, he's he's cool. He's got a you know working dick. Um, yeah, he's a. I mean, he's a human male. I'll put it that way. But I'm still honking down on that D um, when I need to. Literally, only when I need to. Like, it's not that I don't like doing it. It's just that after a while, it just becomes a step towards like getting rhythmically banged out until like your worries can go away and you can pass out for eight hours. That's sort of where where we're at. Functional, functional. You know, we've worked out all the kinks. I would just shut the door and and, like stand there for a minute and then just be like, no, 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 don't you be your old self. And then it'd be like, but it feels so good. I got it. That's my butthole's voice. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. Then it would just be like, That's me walking up my stairs. <laughs> Anyone need a barf bag? And it's all going on over the opening credits. And so if you like haven't figured out what kind of movie you're in, you're not paying attention. <laughs> and the, the whole point of that monologue, right, is to introduce you to Donna as a character and also to set up her somewhat dysfunctional relationship with her boyfriend and then sort of like sets up her emotional arc for the rest of the movie. Uh, The second comedy set is when she's like in the worst throes of her like breakup trauma. In case you can't uh, tell from my deep, deep ridges on my face, um, 
I was recently dumped up with by a human male who is still alive. So good for him. <laughs> I feel like when someone does something bad, they should just die. <laughs> but instead, we die a slow death and watch their happiness bloom. My very nice close friend who's such a nice person decided to fuck my boyfriend. <laughs> I would love to just murder-suicide them. A lot of people say I look like Anne Frank. I would never have survived the Holocaust, that's for sure. If you were cool, this could be art. Or if I were cool. Oh, is this not working for you? Do you want your money back? Because the show is free. I want my life back, but I can't get it back because it's ruined. So that is a cost I have incurred. I'll share more. I'll share more. You guys seem to be fucking loving it. Full-blown affair. You know, like, who is she? Like, Faye Dunaway? You know what I mean? It's like, cool move. This kind of thing makes you think I'm pretty good at fucking, right? It's because she's one of those fucking girls with a thread count. This place is a fucking shithole, so I'm really glad to be on your roster. <laughs> Totally over the top, but, like, communicates, like, where she is emotionally in, like, such an absurd, beautiful way. The third comedy set is where she actually tells Max about the abortion that she's going to be getting the next day. It's, like, so honest and real and just present and, like, mature in a way that her other sets aren't. Sorry which is to um, say to you um, that I am pregnant. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, okay, all right. Testing the waters, I dropped that one down. Uh, the second thing that I would like to say right now out loud, and I'm gonna say it out loud right now, out loud right now, I'm fine, everything's fine, I'm just rolling along with this out loud right now, um, is that I uh, am going to have an abortion. Okay, okay, keep breathing. Uh, tomorrow, which is Valentine's Day. So, <laughs> we'll start from there. I'm sure you're wondering uh, how this happened. Uh, <laughs> little thing that I like to call uh, getting banged out <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> the heat, heat, heat of the night um, by uh, a very nice person um, that I don't know very well at all. I don't know. He was a stranger, um, but a nice one. Probably the best of all the strangers that are out there. <laughs> that have done this. <laughs> Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and... Uh, I can honestly say <laughs> uh, it's not going to be the worst Valentine's Day I've ever had. <laughs> it's going to be okay because um, I know that I'm not, I'm not alone. I'm totally, uh, totally here. You guys are here. You're all going to come with me tomorrow. <laughs> but it's going to be... Um, um, I think it's going to be okay. And uh, afterwards, I'll just, uh, I'll be in my future. And, uh, you know, we'll go from there, right? <laughs> I guess so. Um, that's really it. You guys have been very generous to me tonight. And I've really enjoyed myself. So um, thank you and happy V-Day. I hope you get all the uh, candy that you uh, want and deserve. That's it. Thank you. And I think it really shows, like, how much she's kind of, like, grown as a person throughout this whole process. Um, and it actually, it reminded me a lot of uh, Tig Notaro's 2012 performance called Live, uh, where she talks about having just been diagnosed with breast cancer and also like a very real honest way um and i i almost wonder if they had that in mind as they were writing that comedy set yeah i wonder the comedy sets are so interesting because um they felt very unrehearsed mm -hmm. both in the context of like the story but also her delivery like she's very naturally 
vulnerable. And it's interesting that you said like she was actually a stand-up comedian when they cast her in the original mm-hmm. short, right? She's not like an actress. Actress. I mean, I, she is now, but yeah, before she, the short film version, it was the first like real acting that she had ever done. And then in the short film, she's not a comedian, and there's like no comedy really at all. Yeah, because she's like, she's so upset on the stage and she's like, she's crying, you know, at, at, at different points. And um, like, it's a really good performance and you can feel the like, the kind of energy of her working something out, but she somehow feels more comfortable being in front of people and on that stage than she does, you know, one-on-one with people. Like she's not able to tell her boyfriend at the beginning of the movie that the sex is not good anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but on stage, she can look right at him and be like, you know, like, oh, that's pretty, it's pretty boring now, which is nice. Like it inverts that opening moment, right? Where the boyfriend rejects her because of her performance. And then Max accepts her uh, because she's able to um, tell him on stage. Like he accepts her as a complete person, like as a performer and an artist, but also this news that, was hard for her to deliver. Yeah, yeah. In a way that's really satisfying. You know, you're like, oh, you're a cool guy. You're not a jerk. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, to be fair, like, the sex was probably bad because he was already cheating on her with that other. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah, that guy is such a heel. Like, they just make you hate him. Yeah, and I just, I love, too, the way that they show her dealing with the, the trauma of the breakup. It's, It's like, one of the best depictions of, like, relationship grief that I think I've ever seen. I love when she, like, she's, like, standing there in the cold with her coffee, making making all these, like, weird promises with her in the universe. (laughs) And it's, like, she knows what she's doing is wrong the whole time. Like, she's not glorifying it. She's, like, so deeply ashamed of it, but she also just can't stop herself. That's exactly what it feels like to be broken yeah. up with, right? When you're the one who didn't decide to leave and you're you just yeah. feel helpless. There's that other moment too where like she's pours a glass full of wine and she like drinks some and then like spits it back and then just like chugs the whole thing. <laughs> and it's like like teetering on the edge, she's like, Oh, I can't get this drunk. Oh no, I'm absolutely getting this drunk. <laughs> that was like I listened to the commentary again because I bought the DVD for this. That was, like, one of the moments that Jenny Slate totally improvised on her own. She was, like, she, like, didn't even bother to explain. She was, like, oh, no, no, just roll the camera. I got this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and as far as the, the, like, comedy routines, feeling very authentic and improvised, the writers definitely came up with the plot points of what they wanted all of the routines to have and, like, what they needed to do. She definitely improvised the whole thing. Like, in her regular comedy, she basically works from bullet points and kind of riffs off of that. And so uh, the movie scenes, they basically did them the same way. And, you know, they just, like, filmed a ton of material and then cut it down to what they thought was the best. That's really interesting. A lot of um, stand-up comedy that I'm familiar with is, like, it's meticulously scripted but then rehearsed in a way where it feels improvisational mm-hmm. and natural. Like, I really like that they included that then. Did they say in the um, commentary at all if she had ever had an abortion or if any of the events are, like, based on anything oh. in her life then? So in the commentary, they did not talk at all about any of their personal experiences with abortion, which is interesting, right? I mean, I totally understand why they didn't do that, right? It's like they don't owe that to Mm -hmm. us the viewers and it is like a very personal thing to share Um, but it's interesting because the sort of like sharing of abortion stories is such an important part of the movie right like one of the ways in which the movie really successfully works to normalize and destigmatize abortion right is that as she's going through this process you know almost every single woman who she talks to Uh, Her best friend, her mom, has some kind of abortion story to share, too. And especially, you know, like, her mom, who had an abortion before it was even legal and talked about, you know, like, going to this, like, stranger's apartment. I think sort of that pre-Roe 
context is really important and the like sisterhood of of shared experiences is super important it actually it reminded me a lot of the way where if you've been sexually assaulted and you like share your story of sexual assault people will just be like oh my god (laughs) me too even like before the me too movement right it was sort of like no one really talked about sexual assault publicly um but as soon as you open yourself up privately to someone like more likely than not they have their own share story that then they will share with you yeah i really love that part where her best friend talks about it where she says like i do think about it sometimes and i cry but i never regret it yeah that's exactly i've known a lot of women from different generations who have had abortions and that is always what it seems to boil down to like there's a lot of gravity to that choice it's not laden with regret yeah. Ever. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, well, okay. So pulling back the curtain a little bit, Alan and I made a decision that we were not really going to get too much into the politics of abortion during this conversation because the movie is so much more about the subjective experience of getting an abortion and we really wanted to sort of like honor that. It's hard to find a good middle position. Like I feel like there there's sort of like two ends of a pendulum, right? Like there's the people who think that like absolutely everyone should regret getting an abortion that you know it's something that you absolutely shouldn't do and then there's the people in sort of in reaction to that like no you don't have to regret it getting an abortion is no big deal like blah 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 blah. and i feel like this movie does actually do a good job of threading that middle ground of saying like yes it can be a big deal and it can be an important solemn decision without having it be the biggest deal you know it is like a very personal important decision just in the same way that like becoming a parent is a very like meaningful important decision and so not becoming a parent is also a meaningful important decision it's two sides of a coin right you know like the decision to be a parent should be like a really meaningful important fraught decision and like you should probably cry a little bit because it's like a big crazy thing you know and like yeah and and the same way like choosing not to be a parent is like somewhat similar right it's not like some kind of crazy moral choice in the movie never depicts it that way she is more worried about like the reaction that her mother is going to have than she is about the actual choice that she's already made it's it's more about the perception that the people around her that she cares about are going to have that's what she's really worried about it's not about like the morality of of the choice the movie doesn't grapple with that at all yeah it and it makes no moral judgment about it yeah the movie doesn't make a moral judgment and like it's not a hard choice for her right like as soon as she knows that she's pregnant she's like this is this baby is not going to happen. <laughs> like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the stuff with Max, the guy who is the father um or, or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. It's just inconvenient. She didn't think that she would ever see that guy again and now it's like, "Oh, he's charming and funny and cute and interested." And it's like, <laughs> "Yeah. Do I do I need to tell him about this? Like, it's going to mess it up. Like, he might not ever want to talk to me again, or he might try to impose his sense of morality on me if I tell him. When you zoom out and you think about this as a rom-com is like the thing that always happens in rom-coms, right? Like, you're a sneaky reporter who's doing this story and you accidentally fall in love with the subject of your reporting, but... Uh, you didn't tell them like they don't know the person you really are and oh my god I'm gonna have to tell them and will they love me now that they know my secret like that's exactly what this is the secret is a pregnancy that's going to be terminated yeah and so the formula still works in exactly the same way this is the thing that is preventing them from becoming a couple but it's all about his potential reaction and her dealing with that anxiety yeah it's not the morality So as far as the movie making a judgment on Donna, like the movie definitely isn't judging her for deciding to have an abortion. But do you feel like it's blaming her at all for the unwanted pregnancy? I just, I think it's really 
interesting the sort of tack that they took as far as for like what causes the the unplanned pregnancy right again sort of like going back to that pendulum a lot of times unwanted pregnancies are either presented as like you know I was doing everything right but I was in like that one percent where like the birth control failed or sluts just slutting it up using abortion as their (laughs) primary method of birth control and I feel like you know they clearly know about birth control and are like are trying to have safe sex but they're like a little too drunk to make sure that everything was all the parts were coming together in the right way (laughs) when I watched it I blamed Max like (laughs) that's on him yeah no that's true I feel like when you're using a condom, like, it's your penis, like, you should know whether the yeah. thing is wrapped up or not. <laughs> yeah. I felt like he should have been more responsible, even though he is super drunk. Like, he's way too drunk. That's so interesting, because I feel like it never even occurred to me to blame him, which is, like, totally insane and just goes to show, like, of course it's the woman's responsibility to prevent pregnancy. You know, we're going to talk about this in a bit, like... She runs up against the cost of the procedure. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it never occurs to her to like call up Max and be like, yo, I got a bill and you're involved. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so true. But she should. And that's actually so that's one of the things that they talk about in the commentary. They filmed that scene a bunch of different ways at sort of like varying levels of emotion. And the the takes that they ended up using are when they very specifically waited to have her start crying until they talk about the cost of the abortion. And that it's like all of those little extra barriers make everything so much harder. It's not even just the abortion that's difficult to deal with, right? It's the like, oh shit, how am I going to pay for my rent now? Yeah, because that brings it into a space like, no, I can't go out to dinner I'm sorry, I had an abortion. No, I can't. I'm going to be behind on my rent this month. Sorry, landlord, because I had an abortion. You know what I mean? Like it pushes you into a space that is nobody's business. Yeah. Like I said, I've known women who have had abortions and it was always this. It was always the money was the thing that I need help. I need, you know, like I'm going to have to sell my car. Yeah. I knew one girl who had to do that because the guy was like, uh, no. And so she had to make a choice. Yeah. And it was like, I need a ride to work from now on. Can you help me out with that? And that's how I found out the position that she was in. And it's like, that's crazy. It's a very upsetting part of it. I'm finding it really hard to talk about parts of this movie without just having it go into a list of my favorite things. (laughs) 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 Um, But one of my favorite things is... um, the relationship between Donna and Nellie, her best friend, it's one of the most authentic representations of female friendship that I've ever seen. Um, I love love Nellie's, like, super feminist, angry rant. Oh my god, you guys, stop it with the crazy jokes. Why do you care what he needs to know or not? You are the one who has to get this procedure. Pay for it. Wear the fucking pad with the big wings, okay? You think if he was pregnant, he would be worrying about you right now? No, he'd be trying to get that fucking thing out of his body. God damn it, you guys, we already live in a patriarchal society where a bunch of weird old white men in robes get to legislate our cunts. You just need to be worrying about yourself and why are you looking at me like that, you little bitches? Everything you're saying is valid, but you are scaring my dick off. Anyway, if your gut is to tell him, I say do it because he seems sweet. The rapport that they have is like, is such a millennial rapport, I guess. Most rom-coms, I don't know, the friendships between women just seem so superficial in a way where it's, like, censored to be PG-13 appropriate or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just feel like the way that all of the characters relate to each other feels feels so authentic in a way that most rom-coms just, like, don't even try to capture. And and I know... um, from the commentary, something that the creators of this movie were actually like very much interested in capturing. The archetype of that best friend character is that they're usually like more responsible than the main character so that they can give them good advice. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the relationship in this movie. 
but she's not like in other movies where like you mentioned knocked up like her best friend in that is like married with children and a professional job and a house and a mortgage like Mm -hmm. it does feel more real yeah you're right you know one of the things that i kept thinking when i was watching it with the best friend is that she is not like typically beautiful they didn't cast like the blonde haired blue eyed best friend with you know like very femme or anything like that not that she is you know like whatever like i'm not going to apologize for saying that she's not typically um uh beautiful or anything because i mean it as a compliment both in the casting and like in the tone of the movie it just put me more in the experience of all the characters to not feel like i'm watching Hollywood people try to be normal people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, in the commentary, they mentioned, like, purposely trying to, like, fuck up Max's hair to make him less beautiful. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, (laughs) yeah, none of the characters really look like classically Hollywood beautiful, except, I guess, maybe her mom, (laughs) the Eileen Fisher ninja, which makes me laugh so hard every time. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. Oh, glad you're here. Oh, you're so jumpy. You're like an Eileen Fisher ninja. I wanted to continue our discussion about your future. Okay, well, I have something uh, that I would like to talk to you about as well. I'd like to go first. Great. I couldn't sleep last night, so I made a spreadsheet of all of your expenses, job opportunities, and miscellaneous tasks that I think you should focus on. Okay, um, well, you didn't need to do that. No shit. I have a student in my office right now, and I have one about to deliver something. So we'll do it afterwards, all right? Oh, and could you please go through the mail? I'm still getting your student loan crap. That was my favorite moment. I almost fell off the couch. I was laughing so hard. Yeah. I was like, that is that is the best takedown. And I was like, I wonder if that's improvised or if that was written. Because Eileen Fisher Ninja yeah. is just like the best. Um, oh my god, where was I? Oh I'm yeah. Then like <laughs> So not only are they not sort of like stereotypically Hollywood beautiful, but um, you know, Jenny Slate's character like very clearly reads as Jewish and that has like shaped yes. her identity and the way that she moves through the world and and I feel like this is one of the best maybe the only movie I've ever seen that sort of like explores a little bit about what it's like to be a like visibly Jewish person. There are definitely situations that you get in where you are like not read as white. And one of those ways is with beauty standards, right? Like she like looks very Jewish and she feels that all the time. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Were you like as compared to like Gal Gadot? Yeah, the same exactly. <laughs> ethnicity and and it's like oh the standard you mean? Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. That I don't know why, but that makes me think of the scene with um her father where she's sleeping on the couch and he's doing whatever with his Muppets and it's um I I don't know why that felt like very Jewish to me the whole thing. <laughs> I have I have no experience of Judaism, but I was like. For, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, this all just feels very Jewish to me. <laughs> He's scaring the shit out of her with a Muppet. <laughs> She's like, I'm just trying to sleep. Let's talk more about her relationship with her parents since we're on the, the Eileen Fisher Ninja and puppet thread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like clearly divorced. Um, yeah. And, it, and you get the strong sense that he was the artist and she was like, the buttoned up responsible one and that that like attracted them to each other, but then ultimately didn't work out. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, all and that, of that is inferred. And that she gets her sort of like goofy sense of humor from her dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that her mom loves that in her in the same way that she loved that in her husband, but also is like trying to change her. In the same way that she probably tried to change her husband and, like, failed. <laughs> exactly. And and I really appreciated all of that when I watched the movie because none of that is spelled out, right? Yeah. It's just all, 
yeah, you just pick it up as in the performances and then, yeah, and the way that the dynamics of all the relationships work. And that's why that Eileen Fisher joke is like such the perfect joke because she just looks so perfectly put together and like her apartment is so immaculate and everything. And you're like, oh, yeah, she she feels inadequate around her mother at all times, but she needs her mother and she wishes that, you know, she was more like her in certain ways. I think this movie is a master class in showing, not telling. There's so much that is like exquisitely communicated, but just like between the lines based on the way that characters are interacting, not spelled out at all. Where as as opposed to other rom-coms, right, where you feel like everything is spelled out and they hit you over the head that like everything has a lampshade, you know, and maybe that's an effect of it being written by women mm-hmm. instead of, you know, knocked up, written by Judd Apatow or, you know, Rob Reiner directing a thing aimed at women and be like, uh, here, honey, let me hold your hand and explain to you. Are you listening? Can, can yeah. you understand that they're in love with each other and it's hard? You know, not talking down to your audience uh, is a big way to win over your audience. Yes, 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 absolutely. One of the best examples of sort of like restrained storytelling in the movie is when she and Max first meet in the bar. They have that whole conversation when she makes fun of his shoes for like wearing like boat shoes in New York in the winter. And but they never cut to the shoes. Um, You don't see them until like 40 minutes later when then they're at her mom's house and swapping the shoes and you finally get to see the shoes that were being made fun of before. And he's still wearing them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I noticed that. And I, I wasn't sure, like, sometimes I wasn't sure that they should be together. Like, he's such a dork. There are other times where she's joking and he totally gets it and plays along. And I'm like, okay, I'm okay with it then. Going back to her parents, it's like, (laughs) she's kind of dating her mom as a dude, right? Like, he's... Yeah. (laughs) He's very put together. He's a business school student. Um, Well, he's even into her mom. Like, not not that way, but like... Because that would be weird. (laughs) To explain to to people who haven't seen the movie, like, her mother is a teacher. A business school professor. uh, Right. And he is her student, which is just a coincidence. Like um, she's just hanging out at her mom's house at one point and he shows up to return a book that the mother uh, lent to him. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of these rom-com, like they keep just running into each other. But he's very impressed by uh, her mother. And it's one it's like another signifier in the movie where she like feels inadequate you know, on top of the pregnancy mm-hmm. to approach him, you know, for a relationship. And she tries to diffuse it with humor to make a joke that would push him away. Mm-hmm. But instead he leans into it and he makes the jokes right back. And then it charms her more. Yeah. And it charms me more. because that Those are the moments where I'm like, okay, I, I buy this. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think that we should talk about creeper David Cross. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's talk about David Cross and his like creeper friend zone. So what I I love about the scene, it's kind of saying two separate things. One is is a commentary on like creeper dudes who instead of just being upfront with their interests, try and finagle their way in, you know, like Donna rejected him years earlier. And then he kind of ignored her for a while. Um, And now they're like just starting to hang out again. And then on top of that, I feel like it's trying to say something like very specific about comedian culture. And the way that like he turns everything into a joke. Like he can't even just be real or genuine with her for five minutes. Yeah, and that is, like, not even a gendered thing, right? Like, that's something that, like, men and women can do to each other. But it also, it felt, like, very authentic. Like, I don't hang out with a lot of comedians. I don't know a lot of comedians. But from watching that scene, I was just sort of like, oh, I totally see, like, why it would be really irritating to, like, have all your friends be comedians and to relate to each other without having everything turn into a routine almost. 
you're exactly right because it is the move to make the other person vulnerable. You'd be like, well, we're just joking. What's the big deal? Like, I'm just making a joke or we're just hanging out. Why are you acting like this? As you are, you clearly have an agenda of like, I'm going to make you feel bad so that you do this or I'm going to take off my shirt and seduce you with my awesome David Cross body. Yeah. And like, like, no, none. Of, I'm not falling for any of this bullshit. Like, I'm... <laughs> It feels like she used to be more vulnerable to it. And now she's like older and not into like the game of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I couldn't quite read why she was going with him in the first place. Like I understand in the story mechanics, she needs to make this choice so that she like comes back around to Max. But at the same time, it was like this dude's game is obvious. Like was she doing it to be nice? How did you read it? I think she's, like, still grieving the breakup, the loss of her relationship with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone and you spend a lot of time with them and then suddenly they're gone, you have all this, like, extra time on your hands and you're sort of like, well, what do I do with myself? And I think you end up saying yes to a lot of things that you wouldn't have said yes to before. That makes a lot of um, sense. And so I think... She's, like, craving friendly attention and just, like, wants to hang out with someone and, like, do something unexpected. And there's, like, a theme of failure in her story, too. Like, where she's bombing on stage, her job is shutting down. Mm -hmm. She, like, you know, her relationship gets messed up. And then the abortion on top of it all. Yeah, and Max is, like, kind of a lot of pressure. Yeah, you know, she's, like, she's not ready to commit to him. She's, like, not ready to be in a relationship again yet. Yeah. Like, she's she's still definitely in her just, like, doing random shit until she starts to feel okay again. And so hanging out with David Cross guy is, is like, way less commitment than, like, hanging out with Max who crossed the bridge to yeah. come see her show and stuff. And like, that's a big deal in New York. You paid a toll to, you you know, you paid 20 bucks just to show up there. Oh, he didn't drive. Then... He took the subway. He paid like $250. Oh, you are you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, like, yeah. He, he made a trip, yeah. you know, to come see her. And it's like, oh, okay. okay. Well, I'm going to go. Sorry that you did that. But that's a lot right now for me. Mm-hmm. I like the portrayal of it. I don't know why, like, David Cross is, like, kind of perfectly cast for this. Yeah. But at the same time, like, the whole scene, I was like, I don't know how I'm buying this. Like, why is she doing this? But what you're saying, like, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, like, this, the whole scene works for me because of the way that she extracts herself at the end. And she, and even she is, oh, like. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Like, what the... I can't believe I got this far into this experience. <laughs> like, like that That's is... such a good line. It's such a good line, yeah. Why am I here? Like, I'm leaving right now. This makes no sense. Yeah, I just... it, it Somehow it all worked for me. So the one thing that kind of annoyed me in this movie was in the final, like, closing seconds of this of the whole movie, they decide to watch Gone with a Fucking Wind. Like, <laughs> why? 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 It's the... I, like, is it just because it's really long and they, like, they talk about, like, oh, well, we, you know, we're, like, settling in for 10 hours or whatever. And But, like, there, there are other long movies that aren't, like, super fucking racist. I just... I... I was, like, so baffled, and especially because, like, I mean, like, not every movie can have every type of representation in it, right? Like, that's ridiculous. And as far as representation goes, like, the movie is pretty good, right? But, like, overall, it does come across as, like, pretty white. Mm -hmm. There's the, the Asian Planned Parenthood doctor... The black woman who crosses the street while she's stalking her ex-boyfriend. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> that might be the one the, the one black person, yeah. In the whole movie. The crowd scenes are pretty good, but, like, all of the main characters with speaking roles are, like, either pretty white or Jewish. In that context, 
to then follow up with like, oh, and we're just going to sit and watch Gone with the Wind. Like, that made me really uncomfortable. You know? <laughs> it's weird. I feel like if it hadn't been for the Gone with the Wind, I would have been much more comfortable with how white the movie was. Or if the movie hadn't been so white, watching Gone with the Wind wouldn't have been so bad. But like together, it just, it was not good. So like other than your current fiance, like who have you, have you recommended this to a lot of people? Have you guys rewatched it since that first date? Um, we have not rewatched it since our first date. Um, and he was out of town when I rewatched it for the podcast. Aww. So we haven't really uh, revisited revisited it together either yeah i haven't really recommended it to to too many other people either but that's like obviously a big part of why i chose it for this podcast is because um i think other people should see it and i think it's something that our audience would appreciate this movie is just so good at what it does and it's so singular hopefully a lot of people will uh check it out um, based on this episode. I know that um, Planned Parenthood and NARAL did a bunch of promotion when the movie first came out, and it ended up making three and a half million dollars in theaters, which is like pretty good for a, an indie movie of this size and scope. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I remember hearing about it, too. This wasn't one of the, like, you've picked some other movies where I'm like, I've never, ever heard of this, but... <laughs> But this one I had definitely heard of before. I've just I hadn't yeah, seen it. Yeah, I think it had a pretty wide release as far as indie movie theaters go. It I think it got accepted to Sundance. Um, actually, it, they like they weren't even done editing it. They like submitted. I have no idea how films get submitted to Sundance, but they yeah like submitted some small part. And it got accepted and they were like, shit, like we need to actually finish the movie now. So they actually <laughs> so they had already filmed everything. And they were just sort of, like, doing it on their own time. And then they were like, shit, 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 we have to get this done for Sundance. So they start, uh, put up a Kickstarter and use the Kickstarter money to get it finished in time to debut at Sundance. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely heard stories like that from indie movies before where there's, like, and this has this DVD collection has the Sundance cut because the cut is different from... Oh, yeah. Because it's half-ass. Just... <laughs> yeah. Not half-assed, just rushed. Yeah, just in a hurry. I did want to say, like, one of the things that I appreciate so much about this movie is that um, you compared it to um, Juno and Knocked Up and Waitress, where at the end of the movie, right, in all of those movies, because they're carrying the pregnancy to term, there's the big climactic moment of having the baby and how that's always like the craziness of that is always played for laughs and um and the pain of it and the screaming and the and yelling at the man about this and that and then in this movie it it comes up to the big climax of the actual abortion which is not a big deal at all it's just like a relief and then she just kind of sits in a room with some other women sipping juice and seems to feel fine about everything and it's not traumatic or crazy and I really appreciated that in the movie. Yeah. And actually, I really love the scene in where she's actually getting the abortion and you're just kind of looking at her face. I don't know. Exactly. Je Jenny Slate said that was like some of the acting that she was the most proud of from the film. Yeah. Um, and so as far as recommendations go, um, if people really liked this movie, I would encourage them to check out the film Landline, which is also written by Gillian Robespierre and also stars Jenny Slate. Um, it's less of a sort of sweet rom-com. It's set in 1995, hence the name Landline. Jenny Slate plays a woman who is cheating on her fiancé and then um, finds out that her dad is also cheating on her mom and kind of like dealing with all of that and her relationship with her younger sister um and it has yeah so even though it's in some ways i think a little bit darker uh and less sweet than obvious trials um it has a lot of it has kind of the same sort of like funny authentic offbeat tone cool yeah i have to check that out. okay so 
If you're interested in hearing us talk more about abortion from a more <laughs> political perspective, uh, join us next month for an episode on the book Crazy for God, which is by Frank Schaefer. Uh, the subtitle is How I Grew Up as One of the Elect, Help Found the Religious Right, and Live to Take All or Almost All of It Back. And so this is a book that I read in college and just loved. It's both like a really funny, amazing memoir and also just lends so much insight into the religious right as a political force and sort of like how it developed. And that's one of the reasons why we felt so comfortable basically like avoiding all of the politics of abortion this week and talking more about um, abortion as a subjective female experience. Um, Because next month we're going to be talking about all that other stuff. You can imagine like anybody who is familiar with our stuff, like I have a lot of thoughts about like modern Christianity and the history of like how that religion has evolved and its place in American history and all that kind of stuff. I, I read that book. I found it actually weirdly powerful in different ways because like I come from a similar fundamentalist background. And uh, I found his very like warm relationship with his father extremely moving, even though that's not, um, it's not like my pick. It was like a very powerful experience and I have a lot of thoughts about it. And I, I agree, I think people should try and read that book or uh, listen to the audiobook, which was excellent if they can. Okay, well, Uh, If you like what we do, don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way for us to find new audience members. So we have two high cues for iTunes reviews today. The first one is for Kate. Insightful Monkey wrote a honey-tongued review in a finite time. And the second one is for Jazzy. Our musical friend watched seven Buffy seasons. She'll be there for us. Um, so thank you guys so much for uh, writing reviews. And if you'd like for us to write a haiku about you, then um, you can leave us a review. And uh, if we don't know you and you want it to be uh, full of weird personal inside jokes, uh, then I guess you can also shoot us an email and let us know some things about yourself. Okay, well, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast, and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license.